0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing surprisingly well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Why wow, are you surprisingly well? Well, because I'm I'm a bit overworked because a lot of people are interested <laughs> in 3D printing. So I'm, I'm spending well, a lot of time working and not enough time cooking. <laughs> well, that's a uh, you
2: know, good problem yeah. to have, I suppose.
1: Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: no. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today so we can continue
1: uh, your work? <laughs> <laughs> no, this isn't working. This isn't work. This isn't That's true. That's true. It's not really. Uh, <laughs> um, this is uh, – well, well, today we've got Brett Walker. Uh, Brett Walker is a co-founder and CEO of – well, I don't know how to pronounce it, so we're going to have to ask, about, but it's Electronings and Electronics, <laughs> electronics that's, that's but then correct. we're
0: that's always yeah. the reaction. It's just electronics. Just, just electronics. a little tweak on electronics. That's all. Electronics.
1: Uh, yeah. So it's like electron. It feels like your brain is telling you you misspelled something. It's like electron inks, right? Or electronics, right? Uh, that's a printed electronics company. Uh, and they're trying to commercialize new materials to make printed electronics uh, you know, a viable option for, 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 for manufacturing and scale. And they have a, a, well, a kind of conductive pen for the STEM education market. Which should, uh, can, uh, which should be very interesting uh, to Max, uh, of course, is the co-founder. Oh, I've, I've played with the, a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, That's good. Uh, And they also have uh, reactive silver inks and silver, uh, silver inks that are meant to work for the, uh, the electronics industry, so much, much larger scale, let's say. So, yeah, Brett, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate you having me.
1: Okay. So, so what is it you guys I've probably explained it horribly wrong, right? I mean, I think most of us, <laughs> most of the people who are, are listening to this this. Uh, we'll probably know that like silver and other inks can be used for printed electronics, but clue us on a little bit more because we're, we're 3d printing people, not necessarily 2d printing. People.
0: Sure. So fundamentally we are an advanced materials company uh, specifically focused on metal deposition. So we have uh, metal complex based inks. So like you said, silver, uh, silver is what we started on the market with, and that's still our, our most mature product because it's been out the longest. Uh, we also have platinum palladium and gold, um, as well as copper and nickel are currently in development, but uh, you you sort of yeah yeah you sort of you briefly explained it. I had I had no issues with how you explained it. It's um, <laughs> they, are, they are metal deposition products that um, we can integrate with a number of different printing techniques. So um, whether that's more traditional style, you know, printing presses or, or newer digital like inkjet style presses, uh, inkjet, aerosol jet, screen printing, dispensing, etc., as well as some three D printing products as well. And, and, uh, and do
1: you guys license the material, or do you offer the material? How does that work? It so we offer the work.
0: material. We also have strate- We have a large strategic investor syndicate as well. So we have we have partnerships with, um, you know, with, with Merck and others. So there are some white label agreements that go on as well. So there, but we do manufacture the material. It's not just a licensing process.
2: Huh. It, the material is it, It's like powdered material that's then held in. A suspension or inter- so, so it's
0: actually it's they're actually complexes so unlike it, it is sort of a different design paradigm than what you'd see with traditional conductive inks. so traditional conductive inks frankly are inks are basically just pigments with dispersants and you just put them in a solvent vehicle right you mix it all up and then uh right. that's your ink and and honestly conductive inks really aren't far from that it's like instead of worrying about what color it is via the pigmentation process you're really just worried about how conductive it is and you just throw in some different silver particles or whatever metal filler you want and then you treat it more or less like a a pigmented colored product. Ours really takes more notes from the semiconductor industry that is more of sort of complex style, like you're actually evaporating down uh, metal where with ours you're, you're putting down metal complexes that are specifically engineered to decompose, to create a pure metal. So it's not metal Mm -hmm. plus a dispersant or metal plus some sort of organic gunk or binder in there. You truly, once you do a thermal or UV decomposition process, as the case may be, you're left with a pure metallic film. So it is an actual in-situ complex. So the design methodology and the way it's implemented is slightly different. And the reason we do it that way is at the end of the day, we feel we get a much higher quality product. So instead of having a metal that is really honestly a composite, it's a metal plus a bunch of organics that are left over. Ours is the pure metal. Uh, once you get done with the deposition process, so, so then you
2: don't have the same limiting factors that those traditional methods would have. Like you're, you can do higher current, higher voltage, and things of that. So nature.
0: yeah, the, the performance is typically higher. We we approach, we actually compare ourselves instead of like giving just uh, you know a million per square. We compare ourselves typically to percentage of bulk because we typically approach the bulk metal conductivities. And mm-hmm. the nice thing is, is because it's the complex. It is in the ink itself, there are no particles that are being dispersed, so to speak. It, it is a complex. And so we're, you, we can be, go down to arbitrarily small um, deposition parameters. So, for example, like a lot of nanoparticles and other things uh, or other sort of dispersed conductive inks really struggle once you start getting down to, like, the new, hip, cool, really small deposition nozzles, et cetera. And once you get mm-hmm. down to really small volume deposition... Ours is really just a liquid. So we don't have those same physical parameters that you have to worry about.
1: And also, is it, is it less scary as well? I've played with these well, things I don't at know if I would
0: consider any of it scary. I, I, would, I would need a little bit more definition on what you define as scary. I don't know that I find any of it necessarily scary, but are you well, saying okay, just. Scary? Yeah.
1: So, so I tried to make like, I, I was like, I have a printer that's a motion stage, right? Uh, sure people can turn into a plotter so i was like i'm gonna get some of this ink stuff right (laughs) and i'm gonna make circuits and then i read some of the health warning stuff on some of the stuff and it's kind of really scary so that's what i meant scary as in like health for people using it and all that kind of stuff
0: we have we have our industrial products which sort of conform to all of your typical rohs reach you know all the sort of industrial uh-huh. chemical shipping standards, uh, uh-huh. et cetera. Those are meant to be implemented in a in larger scale and are in production right now with the uh, larger volume environments. We also are uh-huh. very familiar with sort of consumer safety standards as well and, and have consumer products in the form of the circuit scribe that you already mentioned, which admittedly is, a, is, a, is different and under a different wing of the business. It's, uh, it's under Electronics Writables, which is a wholly owned subsidiary specifically for a consumer product circuit scribe. Uh-huh. And so those are fully non-toxic. Frankly, the that ink, other than the silver flake, all the ingredients and stuff you would find in ice cream. Actually, so uh, okay. it's all highly edible. Other than I don't recommend eating silver flake, but if you did, nothing bad. Would happen. <laughs> but don't that's take good. that yeah. as an endorsement to eat the product. Yeah, you like don't yeah. eat. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, So
1: that, that's one. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this got started, because you started. I think you started with the circuit scribe bit part of this, right? Or
0: so that's actually a bit of a misnomer. Is so. Oh, okay. The, the circuit scribe, issue, I would right? say the circuit scribe served its purpose well um so let me back up before I start going way too in the weeds uh-huh. here so yeah, we yeah. founded the company in 2013 and um, mm-hmm. we originally had some grants as well as some some traction and now we're actually pa- past uh, sort of any sort of like uh, embargoes there so we were actually the original ink behind if y'all remember the Google project Ara phone the um, the the Google the, the blocks phone basically it was a modular yeah. phone that 3D yep. Systems had launched uh, in partnership with Google uh, to do sort of an additively manufactured modular phone. Um, I made so oh, yeah, much yeah, money yeah.
1: off of that. I made so much money off of that. I'm <laughs> the only person that made money off of that phone.
0: Well, I would not say we got wealthy off of that. No, there's a reason why uh, we had to pivot and do other things. But we were no, the yeah. only ink that was conductive enough to actually make antennas in situ additively. Um uh-huh. so-
2: ah. And so no. we,
0: because we actually approached the bulk connectivity of silver, and so we could be integrated into inkjet printing, and uh-huh. um, which was the which was the uh, way that those were produced uh, on those machines. And so we were making various different, whether it's Wi-Fi antennas or uh, you know a three G and three G at the time. That's that dates me obviously already is um, <laughs> a three G antenna or or, or no. other things. And so we could you we there was really very talented software antenna design people that could basically mm-hmm. iterate very fancy antenna designs that were highly efficient. And mm-hmm. then um, those designs would be translated into us of like, okay, can you make this pattern and, and how well mm-hmm. does it work? And so uh, and what, that was just like inside the way.
2: plastic case, like you do a layer. Yeah. You would like, build
0: up a few layers of like, layers and, then, and then you, right, would, and you then, would fill it with the conductive okay. ink and then you would sort of encapsulate it. And and then, et cetera, right. Pattern. Okay. So it's like, in the plastic, so to it was, it was It was built in, but uh, nonetheless, obviously we were very much embedded and you never got to see it, but that was actually our first sort of foray into the commercial market. We also had a couple of government grants at the time, but that was actually mm-hmm. where the company started back in 2013. And then the mm-hmm. issue was that we ran into very quickly and um, that I was having some frustrations with is, bluntly, the product is pretty esoteric. And so marketing it to a larger extent, number one, I was under NDA from everyone, You can't really talk about what you're doing. Um, And number two is there's really only a limited subset of people inside the companies that I'm working with who actually really get the product and where it can be implemented because it is kind of a really specialized metal deposition product. And so at that time is when the decision was made like, hey, launching a more consumer facing, very easy to understand product that we can sort of brand ourselves. as a sort of what we do, but in a very digestible way, makes a lot of sense. And that's where CircuitScribe sort of got uh, born out of. That had already been work that had been previously done in in grad school. And it's like, hey, this actually makes sense to launch. So that way I'm not sort of, I at least have a market, a technical marketing tool because I'm going to be under NDA for the rest of my life for for, like actual current projects. And so it's going to be really difficult to advertise what the company does. So um, Mm -hmm. that's where CircuitScribe was kind of born. And then later on that year, we launched what turned out to be a really successful Kickstarter campaign. Um, that um, for the circuit scribe product, and that sort of took on a life of its own, and that became its own subsidiary of Electronics Incorporated, where Electronics released an advanced materials company. Advanced materials do go into the pin, but that's a very specific product line that is scribe, that is wrapped up in Electronics Writables, which is a subsidiary of Electronics Incorporated. So okay. um, that's, that's sort of the... Um, that's the maybe more it. So that's where the, of the founding right. story of how that got went. it. That's
2: where the confusion comes from, as everyone knows you from the, the Kickstarter I thought we were around. Yeah, yeah, were exactly already doing it. doing it. So
0: yeah, we were already doing advanced materials, but couldn't <laughs> but talk, couldn't about, talk about it. And then the Scribe <laughs> was a great way to be like, boom, that's how we got on the map as far as like, oh, these guys make cool materials uh, in a roundabout way. But I mean, it was a much more digestible really yeah. at, at the time. Kickstarter was extremely popular. There wasn't a whole lot of products on Kickstarter, And um like a win on Kickstarter was a win everywhere. And yeah, we were we were really lucky to um, have a very successful campaign. Oh, the good old days. The good old days, exactly. I'm dating myself constantly with conversation, man. I'm really it's kind
1: of of really funny because like there's this persistent rumor going on in 3D printing that no one can ever verify that there's a large phone manufacturer that printed millions of antenna for a, a in a mass customized way for a commercially available cell phone. And they did this in a, in by putting uh, the phone or the individual phones, we're talking millions of phones, on uh, a motion stage and then using aerosol jet, so i to make aerosol jet on the phone itself to conformally print antenna. This is rumor that could never go away and then we could never get anyone to confirm it.
0: <laughs> so that, on, on the millions of phones since ARA yeah. never went into production, that, that, so yeah. I can tell you that story is true. I, can, not, I cannot tell you the parties because that would instill still an embargoed area. But yes. Yeah. Yeah that is true that is true, that is true. Okay. Yeah, there you go yeah. Juris.
2: it's the first confirmation
1: yeah it is yeah, confirmed. and,
2: yeah.
0: and, and <laughs> under different guises i could go into more detail but not under like a public podcast yes. yeah i know yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. but also like okay so uh, what i know about this is really funny because i've been trying to get people to confirm this for, for the only thing i know is aerosol jet because that was the only technology that was doing this at the time the other thing i know is that that light on did it at one point as well um which, and Lighton is a really large kind of battery and other kind of connector manufacturer. And that's yes. the only thing I know I can get on, on, the, on, the, on the record on that. And, uh, and, and, and it's really annoying because it, everybody's always talking about mass customization. And no one realizes that these antennas are actually a really big case for mass customization because all these GSM antennas are different. All right, there's different ones for different networks, and there's different ones for different phones, and there's different ones for for at the moment of production. So it's a really interesting business case that no one knows exists. I'm really annoyed with this actually, <laughs> but uh, I really think it's awesome that it happened.
0: <laughs> it did happen. It clearly is not currently commercial, at least in the case of the the the, the Google phone. It actually was publicly released at one point in time, whenever because they, they had all these mm-hmm. press releases around a Google project all right, And that's why I can speak more freely is because yeah. there was a public disclosure on the Google the yeah. Google team who was doing the development but it was like at a very small conference uh, that that was recorded that was publicly released but um otherwise it was and that was only like a couple of years later and then otherwise but otherwise everything was like completely under wraps like this is such a cool thing I would love to be able to advertise around it and uh, yeah it um it turns out turns out you can't it, <laughs> so it's challenging no,
1: no, no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think enough. I actually you, you know there's the original idea I think of this which was like I think from a Dutch designer it kind of got adapted from this blocks phone as well, right? That's also a different thing. That's
0: correct. It sort of ended up being combined and sort of it combined because there was there was some there was some work with the the Google team already and then sort of yeah. the phone blocks the Dutch team that yeah, you're that talking one. about.
2: Yeah, I exactly. Yeah, I met with those guys at some point.
0: Yeah. yeah, phone blocks was the Dutch guys, and, yeah. uh, and, then, and then Google reached out to those guys and said, "Like, hey, we're kind of working on the same things. We should work together." And Dave Hawkins,
1: that's, that's it. Yeah, it's Dave Hawkins, and Dave Hawkins is really cool. Actually, I mean, he's like, I don't know him well, but he's friends with like friends and all this kind of. Thing. He's really cool. He's also doing this precious plastic right now, which is trying to, like, get people to recycle plastic uh, without the necessary health and safety. But, uh, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but still, it's a good idea. <laughs> um, so, th- th- that was really, were you disappointed with that? I mean, because that seemed like it was, it was one of these ideas where all of a sudden, like, Google comes up with it. Dave Hawkins comes up with it. And uh, then all of a sudden, 3D printing was the coolest thing in the world. 3D assistance piles in. And then it was supposed to be the biggest thing in the world, right? And then it kind of ended up not being feasible, right? With that, was that a big blow you managed to so say? You kind of pivoted from that, but did you? Well, I mean, was that a big blow to you? Or?
0: It was. I viewed it as being like a company that had literally just started. Like I started it in 2013. Um, I was, I viewed it as, I, I don't know. Obviously, I'm a startup, so I have to constantly, I, I'm a startup founder, so I constantly have to have the grass is greener attitude. So maybe, maybe that right. will come out. But like I viewed it as a privilege just to, It's a privilege to fight, right? It's a privilege to be in the fight. So the fact that we immediately were chosen as such a small company to be like one of the only viable ways to actually do this, I felt Mm -hmm. this is a big win. I frankly, in general, was suspicious. 3D printing was going through a huge hype cycle at the time, which you already alluded to. And frankly, that was not lost on me during the process is I was a little suspicious of how this would scale to an actual commercial phone just because I found the project imminently and immediately and infinitely fascinating it was really cool but at the end of the day people like buying phones that are fully finished that they don't have to work around swiss army knives are awesome and swiss army knives have a huge market the thing is actually designing really mature really reliable electronics requires an extreme level of system integration and so yeah being able to swap around parts on your phone it may not be something your average user is going to be comfortable with because it's not like oh I'm at a campsite and I need to pull out my, you know, my wood saw versus my uh, nail file on my Swiss army knife. It's like, there's an a, there's an extreme amount of, uh, of integration and there's like 16 pins on the back of each module that I have to hook together, you know, for all the electrical signals to be processed correctly, et cetera. And like, there's probably a level of comfort your general consumer may never have with that.
2: No, that, that's, I think, a fair way of looking at it. It reminded like early days of college when a video card broke and I asked if, a bunch of people on my dorm floor. Can I open one of your computers and borrow your video card for five minutes to see if the video <laughs> card's broken or the motherboard? And they're like, You're crazy. And I'm like, What do you mean? But that's an engineer's response, right? It's like, Oh, oh let
0: me just. Like <laughs> it's like, It's expecting everyone to be an engineer. And don't get me wrong. Right. I, think, I think the right to repair movement is imminently important. I think the ability for people to understand how these complex devices that they rely on every day work and operate is a really big thing that I think has been lost with. Uh, sort yeah. of these life cycles of electronic devices that that needs yeah. to be corrected. Right. But the idea so that everybody's my, going to be integrally yeah. aware of yeah. all the modules on their phone, I I also think that's uh, I think that's a little <laughs> far out. I think that's a little far out. Yeah. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was
1: it was it was on the one hand it was our heartbreak. because also this Dave Huckins was all of a sudden he, it was his, I think it was his graduation project, right? And all of a sudden he went from his grad- graduation project to being in like Google and on Forbes or whatever, and it was like from standstill to light speed in a couple of months. And then, I, you know, and then the reason I actually made money off of this, because I, I told people that it wouldn't work. <laughs> and, and the reason I told people it wouldn't work is, is on the one hand that it was, we weren't mature enough to to scale as a matter as a, as a of manufacturing technology. And also I said that it's kind of like the snakes on a plane thing, you know, <laughs> you know, where everybody who's a fan of it will interact with that and think that's really cool. But that still doesn't mean you're going to see the movie or you're going to buy the ticket. Right, so that's kind of like the same thing. I think the the analogies actually after that are I don't know. I don't remember when for that was from, but it was just like yes, the, if it would have just been Google's flagship phone, and this is a benefit that people would realize after the fact, uh, maybe. But like that, I agree with you. Like this this whole you know changing consumer behavior is almost impossible this kind of stuff, you know? Uh, you know, but if you, you have to uh, change it, it has to be because it's aspirational or because, because it, it has some features that you don't want. And this whole like, you know, because it's going to change how you consume electronics thing. It's not enough of a reason for people to buy a new thing. That was my whole uh, argument. Yeah.
0: You know, and so, actually, and to tack onto that, I, number one, I completely agree with everything you said. I think that nicely encapsulated sort of the, the business case here, but to that point, to the snakes on the plane point, Or to the, I'm a car guy. It's sort of like why wagons aren't made in the U.S. Only car enthusiasts buy wagons. I love wagons. Like performance Mm -hmm. wagons, I think, are awesome. It's a European market thing. It's not a U.S. market thing. But um, Mm -hmm. it's like ex post facto, it becomes a collector's item. And like there will be a cult following around it. I do, like in hindsight, I do wish they'd at least released a small number of them. Like actually commercially, not like just the R&D prototypes that got floated around to the groups that were working on it. Because I do Mm -hmm. think that item in and of itself... It, if it had actually existed as a consumer product, would have had some level of cult following to it that never got mm-hmm. to be explored because it just never got out there. That is that is the only it, thing that I do think from a commercial standpoint. Yeah. Like Google have made Google-style money off of it. Oh, absolutely not. But there would mm-hmm. have been a cool flag in the ground commercially that doesn't exist because it never got out.
1: There. I think right, it, you'd it, expect a
2: community to grow and then it, the project itself might have actually kind of plotted along for a little yeah. bit. And then maybe now when it's more viable, Conceivable, it could, it could you know, revive. I don't
0: know that it would ever have made a ton of money, but I do think it would have. I think it would have done better. No, what the outcome is uh, of just yeah, like having I, a cult following versus not having the luxury of even having a cult following.
2: Yeah, I more mean. I don't mean the money side of it as much as like uh, the cult following spurring more innovation to then make it appealing on a mass level. Like years later, the cult following can, you know, like a rep rap, right? Like it results yeah, yeah. in everyone being like, Hey, once we've tweaked it enough, now this is maybe there's something here. And then someone else comes along and
0: goes, Hey, I'm just going to copy this. No, so. yeah. well, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think it just being in the market would have spurred a lot more innovation. Potentially. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we just never know because we don't know what never happened. Right? So.
2: After all that,
0: what did you guys
2: pivot to or what can you talk well, about? I mean, we, kept
0: on, we kept on doing the same thing. It's just um, on the industrial side, like Oliver Agreements were with larger suppliers and with and you larger talk producers. About it. Like it did give us nice visibility with certain crowds, which which was good. Uh, but but like I said, like all of it's under NDA. Like really, what we up, really what I'd say in the handset market that we've really seen as a huge market that that we are actively participating in is is um, and, and and it's ironic because I would say it's much simpler than antennas from a design standpoint. Is EMI shielding because now as oh. And now is the real estate inside of a phone, you know, I mean, that is valuable, precious real estate. Right. Everything has to be crammed mm-hmm. into such small sizes. And with processing speeds continuing to improve, like every little chipset needs to have EMI shielding on it right now. And so, mm. and traditionally that's done with PVD and these sort of vacuum based high capex processes. And we can get very good performance data, like extremely good, um, just off of, you know, spray coating chipsets, spray coating these, um, these EMC packages. So that's a really big marketplace for us. Um, and we're working with big manufacturers there. And we have some other applications in cell phones as far as wraparound bezels for like, you know, bezel-less displays. So you have to have interesting arc- uh, uh, electrode architectures for that stuff to work. And so we do work right. there. Um, and then uh, we do a lot of defense-based work as well. And that's for a lot of the gold and platinum and stuff that can't corrode ever. You know, and has right. to work at high temperatures. Um, we do a lot of work with precious metals. And that has to, we have a small biomedical, um, business, uh, where that's used for like biological compatibility, but also just like a larger business for, um, this needs to be able to be put in, um, austere or radiation prone environments, like in, in orbit, et cetera, and still be able to work. Silver doesn't do that very well. Uh, gold and platinum do really great. There. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, of course you have to have the budget to have gold and platinum in there. So that's, right. that's, that's the catch. Uh, but no, we. We we've been able to grow I would say that was a really good way to get our feet wet, just because um the one thing I the there was a number of ways I would just take my hats off to the whole Google um Project Aura team, etc., which which just long been long gone now. But it's just it was amazing. Like like you said, George, how quickly they moved. It was lightning fast. It was yeah, it was really well organized, moved really quickly, and ultimately it was the business case that lacked, not the technical case. And oh. and frankly, um materials is a long, hard business. And so there's always, you always have to have a lot of irons in the fire because fundamentally mm-hmm. we're at the base of the supply chain, the fundamental materials that make this stuff like are sort of have to be, those checkboxes have to be checked very, very early on in the design process. And mm-hmm. so, and that, that was a good introduction to like, hey, Um, There's a lot of things downstream that can go wrong, so you have to have a lot of lot of projects that you're currently working on. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the the end say as far as like is this going forward, yes or no, very well may have nothing to do with the materials. There may be a, a bazillion other variables that me yeah. or electronics as a materials company has
1: yeah. relatively so, little
0: to maybe no sway over
1: so the two things are really, really specific one is so I had, I had to kind of anonymize this uh, as an example but we, we had a company and i was doing like kind of a technical due diligence thing and the problem was the, the my client was really skeptical because the thing is there wasn't enough buzz around this company there wasn't enough traction and they would ask experts and we would interview experts and they would like i've never heard of these people right Right and 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 that was like a, a chasm for them to call uh, to 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 cross and also I couldn't really find a lot of other experts in that area to to, to validate this company so it was kind of like yeah we're gonna have to leap here you <laughs> know it's not our money right it's not your money not my money it's all good <laughs> um, <laughs> but um the theory that the client had was that they were got NDA to death. Right? They were so secretive and so breakthrough that they had done all these proof of concepts and all these things that they had kind of like all of their projects were kind of like muffled. Is it is that a risk, that kind of thing? Because I've never really figured it out. We never could figure out if it was true or not, you know? Well, is I mean there risk? are
0: definitely the companies and like obviously things I can't discuss that I've come across where like they're actually working on crazy technology and they actually have some legitimate headway. And yes, I have encountered NDA to death is, is a thing in the tech sphere, uh, okay, for okay. sure. And it's something you have to be careful about because there has to be a balance of, yeah, you can't like obviously tell about all the customers you're working with in great detail or the projects you're working on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there has to be a level of freedom to discuss what you're doing. Otherwise, the company won't exist because you can't get enough. No. Of, uh, fundamental tech companies require investments. Um, mm-hmm. right? Right. There's, there, you're going to have to raise money and not being able to talk anything about anything and it can obviously be, <laughs> as you're pointing out, counterproductive. There is a balance yeah. to be struck there.
1: Uh, yeah, but we still never confirmed it, really, if, if it was that, or we thought maybe it all went sour. I and mean, we could just never figure it out. So it was really harmful for them, I think. But um, just one thing, another thing is, okay, so you're coming up with this ink, right? They have names like EL, I guess, 710, that kind of thing, right? Um, how do you price this stuff, right? Because there there is existing alternative materials. How do you figure out how much this stuff costs?
0: Uh, I mean, that's honestly it's, it's not it's, it's relatively straightforward. There are some applications where we compete against traditional conductive inks and then we'll price accordingly. There are applications where we're competing against like PVD or CVD or sputtering, you know, in, in a production line where that's just a totally different CapEx standpoint. And so it's basically, we, we do a value pricing, um, a value pricing okay. exercise where it's like, where are the pain points? Where Where is the producer actually spending the money? Is it all this equipment they have to get in to do this specialty process that they don't need to do with us? How do we recapture that value and still make it to where they're getting value for their money as well using our inks? I mean, there is there there is a balance to be struck there. Or if, I mean, if you're talking about our precious metal inks, it's like, oh yeah, the raw materials are just really expensive. So this this, this product there's is- no go, yeah, okay. There's no way around it. Yeah. But There's <laughs> no way around it. Like this product is going to be expensive because um, you can't use platinum and gold and, and make a cheap product. Like that's that's not a thing, uh so I mean it it just depends sometimes it's raw material driven in the case of our precious metals, or sometimes it's value driven in what we're actually providing to the customer uh in the mm-hmm. case of silver for specific applications
1: yeah, okay, okay, because that's I think it's always really fascinating because we always see um printed electronics as a really exciting thing, uh, and then it kind of like happens, but it never happens in ways that people think it's going to happen you know uh it's, it's never really predictable, and also three d printed electronics is like you know, people have been saying that's the biggest breakthrough thing ever for like a decade, and it just never seems to get anywhere, kind of, or, or adoption-wise.
0: It's, it's, so it's, it's challenging because I think every time, it's just like going back to, rewinding back to 2013, where it was clear that 3D printing was going through a big hype cycle. It's like we, we get all this buzz and everything built up, and the problem is the, the underlying ecosystem doesn't exist. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that little aside on, on 3D printed mm-hmm. electronics, for example. It's yeah. so okay, you get these tools that pop up for like actually doing full all-in-one integrated electronics with your polymers, with your housings and everything else to actually make like an integrated Im- embedded electronics is the terminology those mm-hmm. in the field like to use, an embedded electronic device, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the issue is, is, okay, how do you actually design this? Because this is not mm-hmm. a traditional device. It is a new sort of breakthrough thing. How do engineers actually get around even designing something like this? And it's like, okay, there's a learning curve here, but engineers know CAD. Okay, you throw on some additional packages onto the CAD. And now you have a way to integrate sort of conformal embedded electronics into there. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's one way. But I mean, this is all just sort of, these are hard fought evangelistic victories, I'll call them. You have to find people that are willing to spend the time and resources to actually use the tools to do it. That, that The problem is with breakthroughs, if you have to fundamentally change the way people are designing their products... You now actually have a really hard customer adoption problem because it's kind of hard to make it, um, even if you do have (laughs) the tools to make it with. So, and now you have all these engineers that are very well educated and really know their stuff and they have to relearn a tool on on how to make this stuff. And so you have to have to change a design paradigm. And so that's what I'm saying. It's sort of like fundamentally you have to have the materials to work and okay, you have to have a gantry and other materials to deposit with it to make it work. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's all well and good. And okay, let's say you check all those boxes. Okay, let's say you have a decently well put together software package so people can design these things. But like, nobody Mm -hmm. currently designs things this way. So Mm -hmm. you have this entire customer adoption profile that now, instead of like, oh, this is the next best thing, it's like, oh, you're looking at 10 to 20 years for everybody to fully accept this. And it's Uh, just that's where that valley of death occurs. And the kinetics of that valley of death can really mm-hmm. drag out, unfortunately, the more revolutionary mm-hmm. something is, the kinetics of that valley of death can really stretch out because it's like, oh, we've got to change a lot of the things of how we do stuff. And that's why mm-hmm. we sort of have, we've really focused on what we're good at, and that's materials, mm-hmm. and really try to adopt our materials for traditionally accepted manufacturing techniques. They're additive, mm-hmm. but I mean, they're not your traditional 3D printing techniques in the form of a 3D printer. We do have products for those in, in mm-hmm. certain circumstances on a on, mm-hmm. on, Various niche markets, but it's mm-hmm. more along the lines of inkjet printing, aerosol jet printing, water yeah. techniques. That people are already comfortable with designing interconnects and products for, and where can we improve mm-hmm. the performance of those products to compete with older school co- incumbents like vacuum deposition techniques, like PVD, mm-hmm. CVD, sputtering, etc. And that's or really resource intensive products like you know electroless plating baths or electroplating baths. That's where we've really tried to differentiate ourselves is focusing on going after those more traditional incumbent markets, because going after a market carte blanche that is relatively new, that people are going to have to learn new design methodologies and new product profiles, that as a startup can be, the kinetics of that valley of death can just be overwhelming, and you, you've got to figure out a way around
1: that. I like that you mentioned the word kinetics, but I'll go to that in a bit, but um, that's why I think the circuit scribe example is so brilliant, because I, I, I'm a real big, huge fan of soft robotics, for example. And I can never, ever explain to anyone why soft robotics would be useful, apart from that it's very different than the robotics we do now, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it's like, yeah, but it's soft, and there's like a chemical reaction. Water will, you know, make it warmer, and then it'll have gas, and it'll roll around, and then what? Or it'll be like a little octopus grab arm to grab stuff, and then that's it. That's as far as you get. I think that's why the 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 the, the scribe thing was it was actually the circuit scribe thing was actually quite quite brilliant to do that to to really get this market started. And then the why the reason why I like the the that you said the word kinetics is because like you know could we stop talking about the silly circuits? because you spent time working at debts right? <laughs> exactly. uh, that's true. Yeah, that, and 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 like okay, this just seems like it's the coolest thing in the whole world because it's like the Sandia uh national labs like explosive laboratory right right does that does, is, that just sounds like it's the most amazing thing in the world or not or is it not
0: oh no it was it was a very great place to work it was a very good experience for me I, I spent admittedly a brief time out over there but um sandia was a really good intro to sort of the working world uh that was sort of in my gap between undergrad and grad school i worked out there briefly and uh, yeah but no i mean it's it's serious products for serious applications. I can't go into a ton of detail as far as that stuff goes, but no, it was, it was a great experience and uh, it, it was as cool as it sounds. Monthly, I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>
1: you you made know, It smaller. just seems like it's like, it's also <laughs> Sandia where they're like, you know, uh, the, the amount of uh, whatever toys or things you can do there is like, uh, especially in that area, must be like, uh, yeah, insanely uh, more advanced than other stuff. So it just seems like a really uh, amazing stuff. So, you know, as a material science company, you're a bit different. Was it, you know, you said, you mentioned you needed funding. Did, did Was it difficult to attract that funding because you're a material science? Because that's not, you weren't like a technology or a community or like a website or something like
0: that? Yeah, materials is really difficult because frankly, right off the bat, your traditional VCs that even if we have a high growth profile, Like they're they are literally out of the pool almost immediately. Your your average traditional VC, because you know they have LPs and they have their funds and their funds typically have like I'm just throwing out numbers, but on average, let's just say a seven year life cycle. So they have to achieve exits with things that they invest in in a seven year life cycle. And materials, frankly, just don't move all that fast. Is the issue like you can have the best materials since sliced bread, and it just takes. It's going to take the better part of a decade to get really good traction and really see the fundamental movement you need to see with materials. And frankly, we're, we're really lucky. We're, we are seeing that. But I mean, it's been, it's been a little while. So I mean, there's no, there's no immediate turnaround. So I mean, our first, our first investor was, was Band Gap Ventures here out of Austin. They're a small VC fund, but they're specifically material science-based. The, the, uh, the, the managing partners there have a material science background. They've been great to work with. And they, and they invest alongside with the strategic. So we had Applied Materials, was our original strategic that, that came alongside us. And, I mean, and that's I see
1: packaging, right? That, uh, I yeah, yeah a, I mean,
0: AMAT does everything semiconductor processing wise, whether it's packaging. Yeah. Um, they, they, own, they own a lot of other companies as well as smaller subsidiaries. I mean, AMAT's in everything sort of that feeds the semiconductor supply chain. And mm-hmm. so um, and so there's a lot of interesting uh, places to work uh, with, with AMAT. They've been a fantastic investor, a fantastic partner. I can't say an, enough good things. but. That's just it is you have to have people at the table that understand how long this sort of progress takes. AMAT is painfully aware of how long adoption takes in the semiconductor supply chain. They've done very well at it, obviously, but their success was not an overnight success. Bandgap right. Gap Ventures was, uh, is very familiar with the materials market, understands that. And then now we've had the privilege of bringing on a lot more strategic investors. Like we have Burke Performance Materials. We have others. Uh, we have we have um, uh, Incutel, which is a Department of Defense-based intelligence branch based uh, investors so we have dod funding as well and they we have itic out of taiwan other investors um Fu- Fuji Film out of tokyo i mean we have we have good investors on board we have we, ha- we have additional investors that have also come along some of them i can s- discuss some of them i can't but regardless it's it is a strategic heavy game because you have to have someone who's intimately familiar with the marketplace
1: yeah, yeah. It's, it's like an inside baseball kind of thing Kind of like uh, for people to, to 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 want to be into this, let's say.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have to have somebody who's already familiar with it, and and frankly, like even let's say you have a good growth trajectory, and we are currently experiencing really good growth. Like we are we are delivering on our investment theses, respectively. Like we, we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's just a traditional VC fund. Even if I told them the story, even if I could reel back time and say, look, at the, in this time frame, this is the sort of returns you'll be receiving. Like we will actually have this growth profile. Even with that. A traditional VC would still be like, I'm sorry, we can't do this. It's just, it's just the time It's out of frame. their time
2: frame. It's yeah. not
0: their time frame. It just doesn't yeah. work. Mm-hmm. If you're not mm-hmm. public in seven
2: years, I don't want to deal with
0: you. No, that's just it. Like when you're dealing with, uh, if the model that you're holding yourself up to is, is like some of these software companies or, you know, or social media, etc., it's just that sort of time frame on that sort of turnaround. If you're talking about actually making something tangible and actually integrating into supply chains, all of a sudden those schedules don't work. It, it just doesn't yeah. work. That turnaround time does
1: not. Because so what are your goals for the business? Where do you hope to go then? Because you've got these lots of people on board, right? Lots yeah. of long-term kind of people. That's a cool uh, demonstration, got,
0: Tech.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, you need to like kind of like, on the one hand, become bigger. But, but yeah, what's your goal for the business, let's say?
0: So the goal for the business really is on um, the. Uh, I'm, I'm fundamentally a technical guy, so I'll start with the technical first and how that feeds into the business because that's my perspective. For better or worse, is so. Um, it's so it's it's building out the materials palette, and, and uh, so going back to additive manufacturing, I think that's one place where uh, it's it's something that's always the limiting factor, right? Is the material? What materials can you actually choose from and actually make something out of? So great, we started with silver. Our pro- our silver product is very mature; it's getting good market adoption. But I mean. You can only do so much with silver. There's a lot of other metals that need to be used in, in other applications and specifically focusing on electronic materials because that's where we are as electronics. So
2: it, when you envision this stuff like in, a, in an additive manufacturing environment, let's just use FDM for sake of argument, you're printing a layer, you're then using like an ink, your inkjet style material or something to lay this, the circuits down. Do You then envision it kind of, the bed slides over to like an SMT machine and it lays down the chips. Oh, and then it know, goes back over to the printer and then covers the chips or we're not even. Uh,
1: FDM, not if you want to do an FDM, the best way to do it, Well, is do, do it however you want. I'm just, not rise, like, right? Rise is bankrupt. Now you could license the technology that's FDM. And then the inkjet on top of the FDM part, right?
0: It's more of placing. I'm wondering about just like an extrudable paste and have sort of more of a paste extruder. Uh, but I mean, in general, that's just it. Um, with the exception of the circuit jet, which I can get into whether or not we have time, which we do have sort of like full PCB prototyping integration uh, grants and, and work that we do with customers there. But uh, in general, we really focus on the materials aspect of it. Uh, like from an industrial Sorry. integration okay. <laughs> and industrial production standpoint, it's like, okay, tell me your toughest challenges and how we can integrate materials in a more streamlined fashion. So uh, we do do additive manufacturing, but it's in the form of like inline aerosol jet inline inkjet printing bars, you know, these, these large bars of inkjet printing that go down the assembly line and, and then do it that way. And how the actual substrate is made, it can be sort of like, you know, an overmolded uh, epoxy molded compound over a chipset, or it can be, you know, a 3D printed substrate. Uh, it, it, it makes it to where we can be a lot more flexible and a little less indifferent on the hardware that led up to our process and really let us focus on what we do best. And then partner with integrators who really know what they're doing to really Fair make enough. our materials shine and stand out as far as how it integrates in the process. Because fundamentally, yeah. we focus on the materials and how do we make these materials perform as well as their electroplated, electrolystically plated, CVD, PVD, sputtered counterparts. That's what we've got. Do. And so, Fair as, it. so it allows us to have the benefits. Um, it has allows us to have the benefit of being laser focused on what we're good at, while at the same time, uh, immediately, intimately being aware of what we're bad at, and, and it, it gives us the ability <laughs> to have a lot of strategic hooks to then work with partners who really have those parts down. So we're not reinventing the wheel. Because as everybody in the hardware business knows, you can spend a lot of money developing hardware that people have already pretty much done. <laughs> so um, it's uh, so it's much better to partner with those people that already have that resources and already have that market traction than it is for us to start from you know to really reinvent the wheel with something they pretty much already made.
1: Hmm. and then yeah that sounds like reasonable but and uh, generally we haven't mentioned the circuit jet at at all actually like like yeah tell us a little bit about that because essentially it's a desktop circuit printer right
0: that's correct and we do have um we we do have uh some government grants there with it with the air force and so the idea behind that is is yeah using conductive inks and added manufacturing to legitimately make um, PCB prototypes and PCB replacements. So that's that last one that I emphasize is where the rubber meets the road. Prototyping PCBs and making facsimile circuits is, is something that with modern conductive ink technology, like you can do it. Like, like it is out there. But the issue is, is um, when it comes to like actually replacing boards that are broken, um, that's actually with older planes uh, is a challenging process because the digital manufacturing, like, we're not talking about, granted, in the higher end cases, you're talking about maybe working on an F-35 or something like that, and replacing some sort of comm board. But like really where the rubber meets the road as far as logistics and maintenance costs are these older fleet planes like C-130s, B-52s. This stuff has been around for forever, and they plan on keeping these things in service until the 2050s. I mean, they've already made those plans public. That's not, that's not a secret. These planes are old. These planes have been around so long that the digital manufacturing files, frankly, wouldn't have existed because that sort of thing didn't exist when they were originally manufactured. And so replacing parts for these things quickly and efficiently is actually a large challenge. And that's where the rubber meets the road on additive manufacturing. It's maybe not trying to 3D print the entire board. It's maybe integrating traditionally accepted processes like PCB manufacturing, but PCB manufacturing, frankly, there's a reason why your quick turn prototypes take so long and cost so much if you get them within a couple of days. It's because that process is not made for one-offs. And that process is not made to be, you know, for anything less than, you know, a couple hundred to a few thousand boards to millions of boards. Like it is made to be a high production process. It does not translate well to, oh, this guy needs like a couple boards to test his design. It doesn't work well for that. And so that's really the niche we're trying to fill with CircuitJet is how do you go from a design that you have on whatever eCAD software that you have, whether that's, you know, Fusion Electrical, Eagle, Altium, whatever it is you're working with. How do you validate that design to eliminate this iterative process of sending these boards out of house? to validate that, that are inevitably wrong. You've got to iterate on a few times because that's how engineering works. And then finally, you have to validate uh, board that you actually go to into production with. It's how do you shorten that time cycle from both an engineering time and man hour standpoint, as well as just a logistical risk standpoint? Like, so in the DOD standpoint, you don't want to be sending out these boards just anywhere. They have to have all sorts of certifications and everything else. It's how do you actually keep this in house and encapsulated so there's a, you minimize your risk profile from a logistics standpoint? Uh, So one of the best quotes I heard is, amateurs talk about tactics, professionals talk about logistics when it comes to the DOD stuff. And, And it really is. It's all about logistical custody transfer. How do you maintain and make sure these designs stay internal? And that's what CircuitJet is built around. It's built around, okay, we have an inkjet printing platform that allows you to quickly prototype facsimile circuits so you can understand whether or not your design is going to work iteratively very quickly within a few hours. Uh, by iterating these designs very quickly, testing them, et cetera. And then, okay, you need to actually create a replacement board. Well, these boards are flight certified in this case. So you can't just additively manufacture a board because there is no flight certification process for that. Um, you, you can't. There, there isn't the paperwork trail that exists to certify those right now. So you got to make a real PCB. So the point of this and what we're working on is having a... Having a platform that allows us to, okay, you can inkjet print down, uh, print these conductive inks, see if it works or not. But a conductive ink, when you inkjet print it down, is like one micron thick of silver on a substrate. Traditional PCBs are, you know, like 17, 34, 60, 70 microns of electroplated copper on, on it <laughs> or four. That's, that is a, like apples and oranges may not even do that justice. Like that is a very different material profile. So the idea is, is have a platform that allows you without a chemical etching bath, like, okay, so laser etch your FR4, your copper clad laminate. So once you validated this board design, you now can quickly etch away copper and actually create a replacement board. That's sort of where this culminates to. And and that's where the rubber meets the road is you can still use your additive manufacturing, inkjet print in those vias, fill up those vias. Don't don't use this really laborious plating process to plate up your vias for multi-layer boards. Inkjet down your solder mask. Inch at it down so that way, once you have a traditional board made, you can very quickly with additive manufacturing fix all these problems. But it's it's really tough to bridge the gap with when you see the excitement around additive manufacturing. There are just steps in between, and so bluntly, we're just kind of uh, embracing those steps in between and sort of hybridizing that approach. So you have an additive manufacturing platform that allows you to process a more traditional PCB because. Electrical engineers know how to design a traditional PCB. They don't know how to design necessarily a completely embedded electronic board. That design knowledge is not ubiquitous across the engineering sphere. So let them use the knowledge they already know so our product doesn't have an encyclopedia size instruction manual. Let them just use the software they already know, design the PCBs they already know how to design, and make a PCB they'd already be familiar with. It's just it happens to be right there at their desktop. Versus, um, you know, sending it off somewhere to some board house and it being a two-week turn cycle, or paying through the nose for a forty-eight-hour turn cycle. Um, that is sort of the process me- methodology behind CircuitJet is embracing additive manufacturing for what it's good at, for the supply chain where it's at on how boards need to be made to get certified and actually put into fully spec certifiable environments.
1: But, the, but, is, but is this
2: available?
0: Yeah. yeah, it's a. It is. It is. It is. A, it is uh, Can I available in prototype form currently to select yeah. commercial partners uh, in the location. United
1: States of America.
0: Uh, yes, it's American. <laughs> uh, and then, um, to select commercial partners and then Dod. Yeah. So we. Uh, the the point of this is. Uh, All good grants and contracts, like the whole point is you want to have a larger commercial case. We think there is a much larger commercial case. PCB prototyping is a 7 to $8 billion a year market and Mm -hmm. grows every year. So, And we think this does solve a unique problem there. But I mean, it turns out integrating all this stuff together is also quite challenging. There's a reason why this doesn't actually exist in this current iteration of the market right now, or at least doesn't for any sort of reasonable price point. Let me put it that way. Right. I think so, that's a good
1: point. I mean, everybody but but I've gotten a lot of requests by people in this chip shortage thing. <laughs> Why don't we just 3D print all the chips? Right. So oh, you know, is that something you, you would consider to be conceivable at one point? Or is that, you know, I understand. I mean, I think it's a good point to make. But, hey, eight billion dollar markets, nothing to sneeze at, and, and just this technical challenge is, is huge. And I mean beyond that, do you really see like the ultimate like like uh doing ICs doing like like more complex circuits and stuff or final circuits?
0: I do think there's a big opportunity in actually these lower performance semiconductors uh, that, that were actually taken for granted and now have been snatched away from us because of COVID supply chain shortages. I think right. your cutting edge stuff that requires, you know, now we're getting down to like what five nanometer gates and they're, and they're talking down to pushing uh, the two nanometer gates, like TSMC, et cetera, the big boys in the market that are really pushing the boundaries and really, really getting next gen performance. Um, and there are others as well, but um, TSMC comes to mind. Um, it's just, the way that those are made there's it's always going to be a marriage of additive and subtractive technologies I, I don't see pure additive with your lower like 1 2 even 3 gen older stuff you can easily make a lot of the a lot of the older chips that we see memory etc I do see some, a lot more opportunities there for additive. The, 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 the only mismatch I see is everybody likes focusing on the newest gin sexiest stuff, which is like you know the five nanometer, crazy small, crazy stuff. And it's like, if we would just focus on until, honestly, if somebody could recreate the Intel Pentium 4 chip additively, which I do think the technology exists to create a lot more of it additively than was originally, because you're talking that about like one micro, eight size, right? One micron right. gates, you can print one micron mm-hmm. gauge. You can't print five nanometer gates. That's not possible with current technology. And it's probably, you know, a few decades out bluntly. So I mean, I think I think if people would focus on perhaps the less technologically sexy applications, but what would be sexy about it is like it's all printed. I think there's a lot of more headway that can be made there. Like even, even if somebody came out with what is it, the old 4004, the original Intel chip, I think was the 4004 or something like that. Um, correct me if I'm not in I'm not a Semicon expert, so don't take everything I'm saying for gospel there. If people would focus on the applications where printing te- modern printing technology can actually reach those resolutions with organic Semicon or inorganic Semicon inks, et cetera, I do think there's some room to play there because the chip shortage has struck every aspect of the chip market, not just the brand new, super cool, super sexy next gen stuff. It's, it's a lot of the stuff that we took for granted. That's actually the problem is the stuff that we took for granted always being in the supply chain isn't actually there when you need it. I think if people would focus on really solving that problem on where the printing technology currently exists, I think there could be um, additive circuits. But I, de- I think focusing too far down the generations as far as like really crazy gate size stuff, I-, I do think that's. Uh, I-, I think that's a difficult place to start. I would start where you could actually have some early-on successes and get some wins around it versus trying to focus on stuff where the tech really isn't there yet. Hey, I'd, I'd love to print an Intel chip. <laughs> like if <you> <laughs> it, even if it's a Pentium 40, one 40,
2: generation, in yeah, the Pentium
0: like, generation. You'd be yeah. set. Like the press you off of that alone, so much. you'd be exactly you'd be, a, you'd be set. But but it's the problem is, is like if you talk about that performance of a chip, everybody's already taken for granted. You know, like I don't even oh, know I can just make a cheap. one Right? Now, no, yeah,
2: that's fair.
0: It, it's it's tough, but I think if p- people focused on like, okay, I'm going to print a 4004 mm-hmm. or a Pentium level capability chip. You can actually do a lot with that, especially with current supply chain shortages, but it's not oh. sexy enough from a performance standpoint. Yeah, or I, I or think like, that's where the gap is.
1: Or. Like you could just make it, but it'd be really big, right? Yeah, <laughs> make like fifty by fifty centimeters.
0: <laughs>
1: hey, you want it to work, right?
0: Yeah, you uh, could even. You, that's just it. You could print a full package size forty o four right now with modern printing techniques. I think if somebody focused yeah. on that, they could do it. They they really could, and that it wouldn't would be amazing. any bigger than the old forty o four.
2: That really would be amazing, actually. That would be
1: amazing. You hear so that, like, listeners? Brett, Go ahead and do yeah, that. Yeah, 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 do that. <laughs> and so, are you looking for yeah, a nice weekend would, project?
0: Project. I don't know if. if I could spend those kind of resources on that but I do think somebody should I really
1: do are you are you tired of printing that hairy lion (laughs) we've got something nice for you
2: (laughs) throw a fun thingy verse exactly
1: exactly. (laughs) (laughs) nice little weekend project get in Uh, all right but hey thank you so much for this this is is actually wonderful very uh, very enlightening thank you so much
0: no I really appreciate the time and thanks for the opportunity
1: and uh, yeah Max thank you for being here as well
0: Always a fascinating conversation, Joris. Thanks for the time. All
1: right. And thank you for listening. This is Joris Pielsen. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod.
0: For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.